And while you two are in jail together, we'll send a deputy down to the post office and look through the wanted posters. How'd you like to spend a few nights behind bars trying to remember what it says on your birth certificate? Mr. Banjo, for fraud, public nuisance, and failing to honestly answer questions under oath in a court of law, I sentence you to... Welcome to Baron Banjo. This episode is made from the tape-recorded journals of record journalist Aza B. Quickly, holder of the Henry Roland Byrd Chair in American Studies at the University of Oxford, the one in Mississippi, of course. Dr. Q's engaged in a dedicated study of the two men referred to in Southern folktales as Bear and Banjo. These zealot-like fellas seem to have popped up at the most opportune times throughout musical history. Here's a tale of how they married off one pioneer of rock and roll while discovering another who would blow the lid off the genre and set the world on fire. Bear and Banjo were nicknames that stuck like Johnny Appleseed or Robin Hood. When searching the records of Southern town halls, police stations, and newspapers, again and again you'll encounter the activities of characters who might be Baron Banjo. For example... Montgomery, Alabama, June 12, 1941. An African-American man whose name was recorded as Bayer interceded to stop a mob from applying tar and feathers to a girls' school violin teacher by the name of Jeremiah Bonjour. Everything about the story fits what we know of Bear and Pancho, but I cannot prove it was them. When I located a former student of the accused violin teacher, she warned me never to call her again. Report after report kept me feeling like I was getting closer to the source. We got one fella here charged with poisoning two thoroughbreds with what he said were vitamins and turned out to be ephedrine injections. The fellow was not much taller than a jockey and so fast talking that he was gagged at the hearing. That fits what we know of Mr. Banjo. My report goes on to recount how the accused man was about to be horsewhipped when a tall African-American groom leaned down and whispered to the sick horses. Both animals immediately climbed to their feet and began running around the track faster than they ever had before. The name of the groom was not recorded but the accused trainer was called Jay Bungo. That sounds to me like Baron Bancho, but I will not publish what I cannot verify. Now to today's presentation. We invite you to listen to a recording Dr. Q discovered in a storage locker belonging to the granddaughter of a Washington, D.C. attorney who in the 1950s represented a pair of gospel music promoters named Irvin and Israel Feld. Dr. Q is certain the voice on the recording belongs to the musician we refer to as Bear.
That is unmistakably the voice of the musician called Mr. Bear. What is remarkable is that the tape was discovered in the possession of the Feld brothers, who in the late 1940s and 50s ran the supercut-rate drugstore on 7th Street in the nation's capital. The supercut-rate drugstore also sold records. It was an important music store for Washington fans of gospel, blues, jazz, and swing. Interviews from a little-known graduate studies thesis documentary about Sister Rosetta Tharp piece together some of the story for us. On this day in 1949, the great gospel singer and guitarist Sister Rosetta Tharp walked into the Supercut Rate drugstore, which set off a series of events that culminated with her being married on stage in the middle of a concert at DC's Griffith Stadium. In my research of Sister Rosetta, I have tried to piece together this event and how at least one mysterious person who we cannot account for played into this seminal piece of music history. Among the seven support acts at the great wedding were the Harmonizing Four, the Rosettes, and the prophetess Dolly Lewis. Unless my scholarship is faulty, an unbilled opener on that earliest of stadium concerts was the man called Mr. Bear. The story of that forgotten connection between the woman sometimes referred to as the godmother of rock and roll and the figures we call Bear and Banjo began six years earlier, when Bear was employed as a popcorn vendor at the Macon City Auditorium in Georgia. I interviewed Mr. R. Parkin Street, who was a fill-in bass player with the great trumpeter Cootie Williams when his band played at the Macon Auditorium in 1945. I was in the school orchestra when I was a kid. Music teacher comes in and says, Cootie Williams is coming to town and he needs somebody to fill in for a couple of shows. Would I be interested? You could have knocked me over with a feather. Yes. The answer is yes. Cody Williams played with Duke Ellington. What am I gonna say? No? Yeah. Tell Cody I'm busy. It was when Mr. Street arrived at the Macon Auditorium to rehearse with Cody Williams that he encountered the man called Bear. First time I saw Bear, he was working the concession stand selling popcorn and hot dogs. And I'm not even sure, looking back, how tall he actually was. But at the time, he seemed like a giant to me. And I remember, I got the impression this was a temporary gig, like he was, you know, not all that interested in selling popcorn. But he had a bird's eye view of all the folks coming and going. Everything that happened, he got a good look. And the thing about a black man in that time, working a job like that, serving food, he might as well have been invisible to the white people. It made for a good vantage point, if you understand my meaning. Bear took an interest in a skinny little boy who was hanging around the auditorium. The boy was... How can I say this in a way that won't be offensive? The boy was effeminate. At the time, we would have called him flamboyant. Nowadays, you'd say he was gay, and that's fine. We understand things now in a way we did not understand back then. It's a funny thing, you know. Many righteous folks who were all fired up about racial equality and how we were all God's children could be terribly cruel to a child like that. At any rate, 
I remember Mr. Bear taking care of that little boy and making him feel welcome. He even gave him a job selling soda pop during the programs. The boy got a dime for every bucket of pop he sold. After a big show, like the time Cab Calloway played making, that little boy would go home with his pockets bulging. While Bear was working at the Macon City Auditorium, he made the acquaintance of Sister Rosetta Tharp. Sister Rosetta was a powerful gospel singer and an electric guitar player who would be a great influence on Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, and other founders of rock and roll. When Sister Rosetta Tharp came to the Macon City Auditorium in 1945, she was a great star of gospel music who sometimes raised eyebrows because of the abandon with which she played her electric guitar. Certain conservative members of the African-American church felt that Sister Rosetta got her audience a little too worked up. When Sister Rosetta's band arrived at the back of the auditorium on the day of the performance, Bear was there to help them unload. He would carry as much as two men and handle the musical instruments like someone with professional experience. He was followed around by a skinny little boy with a large pompadour who Bear instructed on how to set up the cymbals and tune the drums. While the band was eating supper, they heard piano playing coming from the stage and peeked out to see Bear and the little boy beating out four-handed boogie-woogie on the stage piano with a skill that would have impressed Albert Ammons himself. Bear and the boy finished their number They were laughing when the boy looked up from the piano and saw Sister Rosetta Tharp standing on the side of the stage. The boy jumped to his feet and began to apologize for touching the piano. Rosetta told him it was fine. He played very well. With that, Bear began to play Two Little Fishes and Five Loaves of Bread, and the nervous boy closed his eyes and sang. The boy sang! He forgot his nerves and threw himself into the lyrics. Bear played steady piano behind him. Woo-wee! I picked up my guitar and joined in. Ooh, what a jam that was. When the song was over, everyone in the auditorium, the building crew, catering folks, and ushers gave us a loud ovation. Never heard so much noise from such a small audience and a star was born. I told the boy, I want you to come up and sing with me on the program tonight. And he was hesitant, but he agreed. I remember I asked Bear if he was performing with one of the other acts on the bill, and he said no. He was not a performer. He was passing through Macon, waiting for a friend who was overdue. He asked, maybe you have come across him on your travels, sister. He is a preacher, a slim white man, about my age, calls himself the Reverend Dr. J. Banjo. I asked, what denomination is he? Bear said, Reverend Banjo is Ecumenical. He believes there are many roads to glory. I stopped him and I said, I don't want to alarm you, but 
I hear the sheriff over in Augusta has a white man in jail on charges of impersonating a minister. Something about selling indulgences. I will be driving through Augusta tomorrow on my way to Spartanburg. Would you like me to check the name of the accused minister and let you know? Bear was very concerned and said he would make his way immediately. This was no laughing matter. I said, okay, but do not leave before my performance. We will be raising the roof and bringing down tongues of fire. He said he would oblige. I said, that boy of yours, what is his name? He said, Richard Mistop. So I said, perhaps I should introduce him as the blessed child Richard. Bear suggested, what about just little Richard? Blessed child might be more of a weight than a boy that young can carry. I said, okay, it's settled. Tonight we perform with little Richard, and tomorrow you can come with us to Augusta, Mr. Bear, as my chauffeur. That night in 1945, in Macon, Georgia, a skinny little boy with a big voice was brought on stage by Sister Rosetta Tharp. He brought down the house. After the show, Rosetta handed the child $40 in cash, the most money he had ever seen in his life. He knew right then why God had made him the way he did and what he was meant to do with his life. Richard was going to be a singer. He was going to make music to tear down the temple walls between black and white, gay and straight, the devil's music and the hymns of salvation. Bear went to the boy and explained he had to leave him now, but to remember what he had learned. All music comes from God. All nature comes from God. Look to the scripture, Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. The next day, Sister Rosetta and her crew drove to Augusta. She asked her new chauffeur how blatant of a confidence artist a white man like this friend of Bear's must be to end up arrested in Georgia for preaching. In Augusta, Georgia, a white preacher can pretty much do anything short of praising General Sherman. When they arrived in Augusta, Sister Rosetta dropped Bear at the courthouse. She told him that she and her group would be having lunch at Krim's Hotel for the next 90 minutes. He was welcome to join them for the rest of their trip. Bear said it would depend if he could find his companion. Bear entered the courthouse to stern looks from the white folks doing business there. He went to a counter where a red-faced bureaucrat with a small blonde mustache was squinting at a ledger as if he were trying to translate hieroglyphics. The following is from a 1945 Augusta, Georgia court record. During this era, the criminal justice system was rife with corruption and rampant with racism. The ACLU was worried about certain groups getting a fair trial in the Deep South and did their best to work within the confines of the law to record various trials. Let's take a listen to one. Mr. Banjo, 
you claim you are licensed as a minister out of the Unitarian Church in Charleston. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. In collegiate association with the Presbyterian and free Christian ministry. All right, all right. We'll check on all that. Now, let me see if we can agree on the particulars of this case. Mr. Banjo has been charging citizens of this city a fee to use what the prosecutor describes as a Protestant confessional. (laughs) Counselor, I must confess, the concept of a Protestant confessional is a new one on me. Your Honor, Reverend Banjo never It would seem that your client is selling salvation over there in a tent by the filling station. How much are you charging anyway, Mr. Banjo? Your Honor, I ask no fee for my ministry. If a person opts to drop a few pennies into the basket, that is entirely their choice to make. My premise is simple. Why should the Pope of Rome be the only one who gets to say whose sins are forgiven and whose are bound? Why should Baptists, Lutherans, Methodists, and Holy Rollers not get the same comforts? But unlike Catholics, we do not obligate anyone to confess. We do not make a sacrament out of our penance ritual. I merely provide a comfort for those who wish to take part. Nothing is required, least of all financial contribution. Your Honor, may I ask what faith you practice? (laughs) Oh, I have faith. You are a slippery fish who better choose his next words with great care. I'm going to guess Episcopalian. Am I correct? Objection, Your Honor. Mr. Banjo, I have a mind to lock you up right now. The record shows that the argument was going against Banjo. Oh, Lord, have mercy on this poor man. Bear proclaimed, rocking back and forth on his heels and casting his eyes toward the ceiling. The judge and both attorneys were startled. A bailiff went to remove Bear from the room. What in heaven's name is a circus in town? Bailiff, remove this fool from my courtroom. My sins were so dark that I was bound for a lake with stones in my pockets when the prophet Dr. Banjo reached out and put his hand on my head and cast out all the guilt that possessed me. Please spare this good man, judge. What's your name? I come to you with my soul as naked as a newborn baby. I'm bare. Bear and banjo, eh? Who among us is without sin, Your Honor? But where there's sin, there's also the opportunity for mercy and forgiveness. Be merciful, Your Honor. You could be merciful. And while you two are in jail together, we'll send a deputy down to the post office and look through the wanted posters. How'd you like to spend a few nights behind bars trying to remember what it says on your birth certificate? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Ain't got no bars, no way, ain't got no bars. Mr. Banjo, for fraud, public nuisance, Can you hear me now? and failing to honestly answer questions under oath in a court of ain't law, no I sentenced no you no... to... Before the judge could pass sentence, Bear was singing. He sang about a signal coming through to him, a signal from the sky, a signal he could barely make out. He sang about Lucy the maid in some judge's house whose bed was corrupted by adultery. Every Sunday morning, when the judge's wife was away at church, he came up to the maid's tiny room, but the signal was not clear. He could not make out the picture. Ain't got no bars, no way, no damn signal. 
the judge recognized that he had fallen into a trap. He commanded Bear to stop singing, stop talking, and sit down. One more word and he would have him hanged. The judge said to Banjo, That's quite a song your friend was singing. You must think you are a clever little fella. I am a prodigal son who only wishes to go home. Who among us has not pointed out the speck in another's eye, ignoring the log in his own? Now there's a war going on within me right now, Mr. Banjo. A war between the sober part that wants you and your friend out of Augusta and the irrational part of me that wants to see you suffer so much that I might just go against my own interest. How much money do you have? $32. Fine. Set at $32. Plus that idiotic confessional in the tent around it. I want that burned. Give your fine to the bailiff and get out of my courtroom. Get out of Augusta and get out of Georgia by sundown. And next time you get to singing, I suggest you revise the lyrics to that song. Bear and Banjo made it to Crim's hotel in time to ride out of Georgia with Sister Rosetta Tharp. The conversation about God and nature that they began on the ride from Macon to Augusta continued in Sister Rosetta's music were the beat of gospel and the sting of the electric guitar and the back-and-forth vocal cadences of the black church began to turn into something new. Let us return to the point at which this story started. 1949, Washington, D.C. Sister Rosetta walked into the drugstore-turned-record store of the Feld brothers, Irvin and Israel, They talked about working together. One year after that, in 1950, Banjo came to Irvin and Israel with an audacious proposal. What if they were to secure Griffith Stadium, home of the Washington Senators, for a concert by Sister Rosetta? Irvin and Izzy had never heard of such a thing. Even a star as big as Rosetta Tharp could hardly be expected to fill a sports stadium. This is where Banjo threw in his hook. It would not be just a concert. I would get married during the show. Who would not pay to see that? The Fell brothers nearly fell on the floor. They said they'd never engage in this kind of thing before. Banjo and the Fell brothers pitched the idea to me, and I was all for it. The only obstacle was coming up with a groom for me. Banjo said he would find a good-looking, younger man of no particular profession who was happy to marry a famous woman who would support him. My stadium wedding was on July 3rd, 1951. It was glorious. Sister Rosetta Tharp's stadium wedding was like nothing Washington, nothing the music world had ever seen before. 22,000 people paid for a concert and marriage ceremony. Thousands more were unable to get to Griffith Stadium because of massive traffic jams. To hold the attention of the crowd while the late comers filed in, 
a singer no one recognized came on stage unannounced and launched into a powerful song. After the pinnacle of that great public wedding, Sister Rosetta's career began a slow decline. Some of her fans turned her electric version of gospel music into a style given a new name, rock and roll. Among those who called Sister Rosetta a great influence were Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, and a boy she had brought up on stage in Macon, Little Richard. There are great artists who change the world forever. There are great artists who make innovations that inspire millions. And sometimes, those great artists live long enough to see the public forget their names. I am Dr. Asa B. Quickly of the History and American Studies Department of the University of Oxford, not the one in England. Kathleen, uh, Kathleen... Kathleen, get get one of the grad students to type this up and submit it to the Journal of American History. You got any more of that licorice? The reach of Baron Banjo has been so far and wide in modern music that it's hard to tell what music they may have influenced. And you'd need a very complicated Venn diagram to piece it all together. However, we do know that Zach Brown knows his folk and country roots enough to have sought out Can You Hear Me Now and do his own version on that number, bringing this music to his audience and further propelling the myth of the duo Baron Banjo. Zach released the song in late 2019, and his version sounds pretty darn good. Far away, but I'm closer. Love the job, got a chauffeur. You have been listening to Dr. Q's Tales of Baron Banjo. Producers wish to make clear that they cannot accept responsibility for the accuracy of any of Dr. Q's interpretations, suppositions, or speculation. He's a fine academic and a dedicated historian, but when it comes to this Baron Banjo business, he's way out in front of the posse. Tonight's episode was written by Bill Flynn. Baron of Banjo was created, executive produced, and directed by Jingle Jerry. Executive produced by Dennis Quaid, T-Bone Burnett, and Jason Pooh Bear Boyd. With original music by Jason Pooh Bear Boyd and Jingle Jerry, it's Baron of Banjo and T-Bone Burnett with lyrical contributions from Bob Dylan. All music from Baron Banjo is produced by T-Bone Burnett, and all episodes edited by David Gulick. Additional score by Jeff Peters and Jeff Judy. Story editing by Connor Ratliff and associate produced by Emily Bolka. Produced by Tom Piazza, Noel Brown, Brian Wallen, Jesse Corwin, and Dan DeMoe. Co-produced by Rosanna Arquette. For episode music, please visit the iHeartRadio app or wherever one finds good music. Baron of Banjo is a production of Jingle Punks in partnership with iHeartRadio. 
Special thanks to John Ingrazia of Vector Management and Gary Morella of Mono Music. Krista Lenny from Maiden Creative, Gail Troberman, Connell Byrne, and the entire iHeart team. An extra special thanks to Sue Turner for being Baron Banjo's head of tour security. For a full list of production credits, behind-the-scenes footage, and source material, please visit baronbanjo.com. Jingle Punks is an anthem call.